welcome to episode 308 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So check this out. I know you know this. We all know this. For a variety of reasons, this idea of adoption has just been totally underemphasized by like 20th century evangelical Christians in their understanding of salvation. We got the regeneration, we got the justification, and we got sanctification. Those all get their central place as they ought to. But somewhere in the midst, adoption just falls by the wayside. We're going to fix that. You and I. We're fixing it. It's true. This, this, will, this will be the definitive episode on definitive. fixing the overlooking of adoption. Definitive. So we're talking still about soteriology because why would we not want to talk about how great salvation is and how being a Christian is the most amazing thing in the world? And we're going to get after how adoption by the Spirit fits into all of that. But of course, before we do that, we got to affirm, we got to deny. It's been another week since you and I spoke. So what are you affirming with on this episode? So I'm affirming a new television show. This is not going to be a surprise to anybody because it's been like all over the internet. I've been watching the Lord of the Rings, uh, the Ring, the Ring of Power television show. It's really, really good. It's really, really good. So I know there's all the like, like people are either mad or love that there's a black elf. I, I think it's fine. I don't think that Tolkien would care all that much. Um, they're really some people are really upset that like Galadriel is like this fierce warrior, but like I've never read the Silmarillion, but it, I have talked to people who have, and like she's a pretty fierce warrior in the Silmarillion, so I don't know why people are upset True. that. But um, this has a very different artistic feel than Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, and definitely a different feel than Peter Jackson's Hobbit trilogy. Um, and it, it's much more, um, how do I want to put this? It's much more realistic in the visuals, but it also, because of that is also much more fantasy. So like it takes the world of middle earth and it, it makes you feel like it's a real place, but because of what middle earth is and how middle earth functions, the realness of it is like supernaturally surreal. So it's, it's just a cool show. The pacing is really good. They've added some elements to it that are new, some invented characters, but seem to really fit um, with the the feel and tone of the show and with what was going on in that kind of time frame in the Silmarillion in the history of Middle Earth. So it's just really good. You have to have an Amazon Prime membership, but you don't, as far as I can tell, because we don't have this, you don't have to have an Amazon Prime TV membership. So if you have Amazon Prime just to get your free shipping, you should actually have access to this show. Um, there's three episodes out there, about an hour long each, but it's just really good. It's just really, really good. I'm really enjoying it. That's high praise. I've been looking for somebody to give me a review because I'm a little bit agnostic towards it. So I don't have the time right now to probably invest in it, but I'm just kind of curious like how it actually is unfolding because it's they're going to have to take a lot of liberty with the storytelling because they really have access to all the appendices. Yeah. That's what they have the rights to. So, I mean, this is like super nerdy stuff. And others have argued, like you said, honestly, in many of uh, Tolkien's storytelling, there is a diversity of characters and he actually mentions skin tones as part of that. So yeah. it's not like it's far off the mark there, but people are going to be people yeah. and they're going to complain about something like that. So yeah. I'm, I, I'm taking your, I would say affirmation under great advisement because I was waiting for somebody to say like, how is it really? Who, yeah. who like understands enough about the grand story arc and the characters and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, I think that this is the second age of middle earth, if I'm getting my timelines right. So this is, so middle earth starts off and there's like the elves come on the scene and that's like the first age. And there's this weird period where there's no sun, but there's these trees and they give off light. And that's like the right. first age. Then the trees get destroyed. And then there's like a second age, which is a little bit different. And then what we usually think of when we think of the Lord of the Rings is like the age of the hobbits and what's going on with, with what's in the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I think that's the third age. I might be wrong on those specifics, but this takes place in that period of time after the trees are destroyed. And during that time period, the main villains that we we know about, so Sauron being the main villain, and then there's Morgoth, who's like the main villain behind Sauron, Sauron. 
they're not really in the scene. So they're, they've been defeated in sort of this first big war and now they're kind of in the background. So that's where we're at. So there's, there's this sort of bubbling tension underneath that we all know that these characters are there and we, we don't know when they're going to reappear or if they're going to reappear during this, during this season or this series. Um, so it's, it's very good. And I think, you know, one of the things I in, I'm going to get like lamb blasted for this lamb blasted. I like that lamb blasted. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get lambasted for this. I actually enjoyed the Hobbits trilogy because I think Ooh. I think you have to understand what it is. It's not supposed to be a movie a movietization of the Hobbit. It's supposed to be a movie trilogy inspired by the Hobbit with the Hobbit as like right. its as like its inspiration and basic source material. Um, I, Peter Jackson was not trying to make a faithful articulation of the Hobbit. Um, if he did, it would have been about an hour long and it would have been very superficial and very basic. Um, so I enjoyed the Hobbit for what it was, but tonally it was, it was very much a child's movie. Like it was very, very right. childish. The animation was very kind of like bombastic. The best explanation I've heard of that is that it's, it's a movie version of Bilbo telling the story to Frodo. So like it's exaggerated and that's kind of like what the Hobbit was ended up being in the the whole like grand scheme of things was Bilbo's recollection of the events of the day. This is much more, uh, like I said, much more realistic tonally. It's more adult. And I don't mean like adult in like the smarmy HBO way, but like it's more adult in like the mature sense. The storylines are mature. They're more complex. The characters are less one dimensional or two dimensional. They, they have like depth to them. Galadriel has more than just being like this sort of like, vaguely mystic weird sort of witch in the woods kind of thing which is what she's got going on in the lord of the rings and the hobbit movies she's a much more robust character and you're seeing her in a different phase of her own personal development so i just i really really am enjoying it and it's supposed to be the beginning of like a lord of the rings like television universe so they're planning on going forward and making more to go through i would love it if they someday made it to the actual war of the rings um or the ring trilogy the lord of the rings um i think that this whoever's doing this could do a really good job with that in sort of this like episodic serial fashion instead of like these big movie chunks um so yeah i just think it's good if you've got amazon prime check it out um it's going to release once it's all done i think it'll probably be like 10 episodes so this is the kind of thing where if you're really interested you could always buy like a month of amazon prime and then binge the whole thing and then cancel your subscription when you're done with it. But I think it's, it's worth watching. It's an engaging thing and it's a major kind of cultural discussion point right now. And Tolkien was not, was not writing an allegory in the strictest sense. He was writing a, a story that wove in Christian themes because that's who he was right. and all of his stories brought in Christian themes. Um, so there are definitely themes of, redemption and sacrifice and innocence um you know one of the things they've introduced and you find this out in the very first episode in the first like 15 or 20 minutes so it's not a big spoiler um the there's this race of small people that are basically like proto hobbits that are very and my understanding is they're very lightly mentioned in the silmarillion but they mm -hmm. become like this major part of it and they serve the same role that hobbits did in the lord of the rings they're sort of this innocent folk that gets swept into what's going on, but they're just, they're just, even they are better done. I think than the hobbits were in definitely in the Hobbit movie, but in, in Lord of the Rings, even their culture and their interactions are already more nuanced and robust. They like already have a more well-developed culture than what you see in the Lord of the Rings. So I'm, I'm nerding out on it. And this is not the Lord of the Rings cast. There are plenty of Lord of the Rings, like lore casts um, out there that are, are entertaining. We don't need to be that, but I'm really enjoying the show. I definitely would recommend it so far. At least there's a little bit of sort of like fantasy violence, killing monsters, kind of blood stuff going on. That might, might be a little bit iffy for really young kids, but I have, I really doubt there's going to be anything in the way of like really significant language or really significant like sexual stuff or nudity. That's just not really part of the stories in the same way. So you might see some of it just because that's how things go. But um, so far there hasn't been any of that. So I've been impressed. That's good. Nobody wants to see any elf nudity. No, no. Elves are boring. <laughs> they're supposed well, to be praise. boring. Yeah. They're supposed to be boring and sort of like plain Jane nothingness. They're just, right. they're morally unquestionable and they're, yeah, they're angels basically. So, right. 
Yeah, basically. Yeah, that's a good point. We've talked about this before, and maybe someday we will do like the Lord of the Rings Reform Brotherhood episode where we can go into all this stuff and really yeah. nerd out. But we've I think you and I have talked about this at various points. We've talked about good stories, yeah. good storytelling, even if that's like something like it could be Lord of the Rings or it could be Harry Potter. You're going to find that you can't help if you have a good story, find that it's smuggled in all these yeah. Christian principles and themes and tropes because that is the greatest story ever told. All this stuff about love and sacrifice, redemption, and being given a right to be restored. All of these things are like part and parcel for like the basic human existence and yeah. the things that we all long for when we are especially pressed in life. And so it's just not surprising that it, it is funny how people want to say like, well, if he didn't write it as an allegory, it's not as good It'd be like, no, it's, it's a great story where he is like unashamedly and unabashedly like coming in with these strong themes yeah. of redemption. And I think that's beautiful. It's yeah. always great to hear those stories, isn't it? And it, of course, as Christians, it should turn our hearts toward the one who's given us that full redemption. Yeah. So in every way, I find it brings us both entertainment and doxology. And I mean, that's the jam right there. Yeah. And, and just as a side note, Tolkien's Silmarillion's pantheon of gods definitely is closer to Christian orthodoxy than like, I don't know, all this weird like EFS nonsense that's going on. So like the 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 main like supreme chief god of of the Tolkien universe is far closer to what we would say is an accurate depiction of God from the Bible than like even what right. you hear out of like Scott Oliphant before his repudiation. Yeah, for sure. Like the main God of, of this, he's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's all knowing everything's happening according to his plan. Even the evil is happening according to his plan. It's, it's a, it's a far more robust. I would say even, um, even than like CS Lewis's world, it's a far more robust picture of a transporting of Christian theology into fictional narrative in a, a more direct sense, even though he wasn't writing an allegory, his right. conception of what it would be, what, what, what the God who created out of nothing would have to be is so close to what we would articulate as classic theism. Um, right. it, it's just a good, it's a good story. And he borrows from the Christian tradition and the Christian narrative in such profound ways that it really is worth considering. And some of those are going to be masked in a, in a thing like this because the, the fallen world can't help but obscure the gospel when right. they do things, but they also can't help but reveal the gospel when they're exactly. telling the stories. So That's it's the point. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's worth watching with a critical eye, but also just to enjoy it too. We don't always have to be writing a blog article about something. We can just watch a TV show <laughs> and enjoy it. And I think to your point, this is maybe something you can enjoy like guilt-free. Yeah. You, you're just going to be lovely things in the, their themes that yeah. will even point you toward these wonderful first principles of the gospel. Yeah. And that's great. If you can get that in the thing that you're sitting down to use, to relax and to enjoy and to spend time with your family and to talk about, these are great things. It is remarkable. Isn't it that the Lord of the Rings as a series, as a storyline with these characters are not just iconic, but lasting yeah. in a very profound way. And yeah. I think part of that is it's, of course it's Tolkien. He here's a dude that created this massive world with all of its complexity, but that turns actually some people off because it can, yeah. it can seem too overwhelming. It's really the story that he tells and the principles undergirding that story are far more gospel than anything else. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. The ba I mean, the basic contour of the story is that there's a, there's a God and he desired to create uh, a world that was inhabited by creatures who would enjoy right. this world. And right. uh, even though there was an evil, uh, an evil entity that was part of his creation who sought to undermine it, that that undermining itself was actually part of the beauty of this creation and its final culmination or redemption. So it's that the gospel shines really clearly through that. There's the one thing that I think maybe is missing a little bit is like a really clear Christ figure. Um, you know, all the main characters, the main three sort of hero figures in the Lord of the Rings all have a little bit of Jesus in them. Um, right. But there, there's no clear universal redemption of all things that I think is lacking. And maybe, maybe had he, he kept writing, he would have gotten to that. He would have had right. his equivalent of like the last battle from CS Lewis or something like that. That would have been like the eschatology of middle earth. Um, but, but I don't, I don't think so. I think he was, I don't think he was trying to do that, but because of who he was and his own Christian commitment and background, he couldn't help as he was creating this world 
to bring that world to bear in a way that's oriented towards the the Christian truth of how the world exists. So yeah, it's worth it's worth looking at, it's worth watching, it's worth thinking deeply about, but it's also worth just enjoying. It's enjoying. it's visually really appealing, it's, it's story-wise it's really good. Um yeah, it's it's just good. It's good. Save right. me from this, Jesse. I mean, I could keep no, on talking about this until you that's high praise. stop me. Someday we'll we'll do that episode, right? Yeah. We should really do that episode where we just talk about some of these major things. Yeah, for sure. Because it's just, it, it's a joy, I think to your point, it's a joy to talk about. Yeah. It's it's great storytelling. It's really immaculate and interesting characters. And yeah. it's characters of like these different fantasy races. So you're getting all this diversity. I mean, you have a nation's all together. I mean, it's just, it's great, right? And it's, yeah. there's something lovely about being able to almost apply gospel principles and speak about gospel principles outside of your own world. Does that make sense? Like yeah. you're, we get to st- stand back as if like we are outside and transcended and speak about how all these characters are seeing really like the love of God transcend. Yeah. And that's not something we often get to do to be the third person in that. Yeah. And I think that also just, that just should give us like this extra kick, this rocket fuel for our love and desire for God, because we can kind of evaluate it in the third person in a totally different universe. Yeah. There's something fun about that. So I think that's why it draws people in and, and we want to talk about it even now. I yeah, think that's why. For sure. Well, what are you affirming today, Jesse? So on this episode, I'm affirming with Jesus as King, maybe not for the reason that uh, people are thinking I'm going to say this. So if you're tracking with us in real time, you're no doubt have understood and learned that uh, this past week, Queen Elizabeth II died. And there's been a lot of interesting things that have been written about her and a lot of interesting things just written about the monarchy. And if you're not European, and we are not European, and if you're not used to monarchy or constitutional monarchy, these things have a certain kind of pull and interest just because we're like, what is happening? What do they do? It's just yeah. so interesting, like with their actual kings and queens still in parts of the world. And you know, what happens when one of them dies. So it's been interesting to watch this. And I really want to point people to an article that was in the Wall Street Journal. It's actually an essay and it was entitled, She Was the Best of Us by Andrew Roberts. Let me just read for everybody, like just the first paragraph so you get a sense for this article. Uh, Andrew Roberts writes, we British like to believe that we have the virtues of duty, decency, good humor, and tolerance as part of our national DNA. There might be some self-delusion in this, and it is certainly not always true. But it is a strong part of our self-defining myth as a people. Of one Britain, however, it genuinely was true. And for 70 years, we have known that because of her virtues, we would always be proud of her wherever she went, and thus proud of our country too. She was a fine, lifelong role model for millions in Britain, the Commonwealth, and around the world. And this got me thinking about the fact that one of the great blessings of true, well-established uh appropriate, accurately lived out like sovereign monarchy is the fact that the monarch represents the people in a way that's profound and necessary and in the most critical places. And this is why Jesus as king is better than every other king. It's not just that he doesn't die. And maybe you've read the same things. It's, It's wild to me. You know, of course, Britain has this principle that the monarchy never dies. So, you know, at, at the moment that Queen Elizabeth II dies, it transfers to her son and unequivocally everything moves forward without interruption. Right. And of course, we've talked about Hebrews. We have, of course, a better king who doesn't die. But it's not just that I think as a person who's American, I often think about kings and queens as the ones who go out and fight the battles and represent the people on the battlefield and come back triumphantly. And certainly we have that in Jesus in spades. But what is almost better, almost better, is the fact that a true monarch a true rep- is one who's truly representative of the people and basically is an intermediary in the most profound ways. Yeah. And so this just led me to greater praise as Jesus, as King, because this is exactly what he does, that we never need to be worried about a representative, that even now, like his ministry in heaven, having made atonement for sins, having defeated sin, death, and the devil, and then sitting down at the right hand of God, the Father, he still in that role has this capacity of an ongoing ministry where he's always representing the very thing that is written about in this article. Jesus is the best of us. Yeah. And the fact that he comes as truly God and truly man, he does all these things and becomes like, it'd be easy for the Bible to say, to use any other kind of term of federal headship, but kingship is right. And it is rightly to be bestowed on Jesus Christ. And so I am so glad that he is my king, not just because in the final day, 
he will stride out triumphant over his enemies, that he will lead his people out, that he will bring that ultimate eschatological rest, and that he is the serpent crusher, the one that comes to, again, put to an end, finally, sin, death, and the devil. All of that is great, and yet just how amazingly profound that he is the best of us in the way that which he represents his children and his people. So I've just been loving this kind of, as I've been reading these things about Queen Elizabeth, being thoughtful about how this is a shadow of all of the greatness, all of the true monarchy that is in Jesus Christ. There's an irony that like we speak about the Britain Royal family as sovereign. And I, I heard and watched uh, King Charles now say something about uh, the sovereign role. And he spoke and used the words sovereign. There's an irony there because like, you know, they're impotent sovereigns, which I suppose is like an oxymoron yeah. of like an epic degree that doesn't really make any sense, but it's true. As far as I know, like Queen Elizabeth could never affect the weather. Right. You know, like she barely, honestly, even in, in the legal realm, there was very little that she could do. It was just in many ways, it's not true figurehead, but there is a, there is a real representation happening right. there is I guess my point, but how all the better that we have in Jesus, the one who's truly the monarch, who is truly sovereign over all things. And then again, somehow condescends to represent us. Yeah. And that is what a true King does, right? We spoke about that on this podcast. That is what a true King does is he represents the people. And, ah, oh man, I love Jesus as yeah. my king. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have much to add to that, at least until we get to my denial. So, All right, well, let's go, <laughs> let's go to denial. What are you denying against? So my, my denial is really just a, an excuse to sort of affirm the life of Queen Elizabeth II. So I'm denying the death of Queen Elizabeth II. I'm not an <laughs> Anglophile. I've never been one of those people that's really obsessed with English royalty or anything like that. But the the little amount that I do know, which apparently is much more over the past couple of days of listening to every podcast and their brother uh, talking about Queen Elizabeth II, right. she was really an exemplary person and she was an exemplary Christian. Um, she, she, by all accounts, had a robust, genuine, true trust in Jesus Christ. She ruled and reigned in a way that was intended to literally reflect her role as the head of the the the, um, the Church of England. She took that position and her title of defender of the faith seriously. Her son Charles has now changed that to be defender of faith. So he's already diluted that role. Um, and I think one of the things, you know, I'm listening to this, um, to this book on tape on tape. Wow. I just feel like I'm really old all of a sudden. I'm listening to this book on <laughs> audible. Um, it's part of the, um, assassins. It's called the Farseer trilogy. And, and the book I'm reading is called assassins quest, um, or called Royal assassin. And the, the, the main character of the story is like this bastard child of the, one of the people in succession to the throne. And so he's swept up kind of into the court and into the intrigues of the court and he's trained as an assassin. And, uh, that's in the name of the book. So don't, don't at me when you tell me it's a spoiler. Um, but there's, there's a, a figure in the book, uh, a queen from another, another territory that then comes into alliance with the territory that he is part of. And in that culture, the word for queen is the same word as sacrifice. And so the royal family mm. in that culture considers themselves the servants of all of the people. Um, and so so they, they're the first one to ride out into battle, the first person who doesn't get to eat if there's not enough food. They bear the, the, the consequences of any bad decisions before anyone else in the kingdom does. And in a lot of ways, when a king or a queen is doing their job right, that's exactly what happens. Right. right. They bear the suffering of the people. And so right. they they're the first people to feel that. And Queen Elizabeth, in many ways, from her very earliest years, embodied that. So she became the successor to the throne unexpectedly at the age of I think it was 10 or 11. And she took that very seriously at the age of 21. Even before she was queen, she was already swearing her life to the to the service of the British people publicly. She was not asked to do that. She wasn't forced to do that. She just did that because it was the right thing. She understood that because of her de destiny, as it were, of, of being the queen, she had to take that seriously even before she assumed that role. Um, she drove ambulance in the war, like when, mm -hmm. when in a time when women just didn't really do that. Um, right. Women weren't even allowed to have driver's licenses, is my understanding. And in that time period, she still was an ambulance driver in the war. So she really served the people well. And I think it's a testimony to her as a person, but more so to the Lord that she served and who, who sure. sanctified and adopted her, which we'll talk about. Um, we're going to, we're, it's, it's, it's ironic. Maybe it's not ironic. It's, it's providential. 
we're going to get into themes of what it means to be royalty and what right. what it means to be sons and daughters of God and the responsibilities that come with that. Um, but she never had a personal scandal in her life. Now, I mean, for right. someone who is 96 years old in the public eye since she was 10 years old, that's a pretty significant thing. Now, there were scandals in her family. You know, her 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 son was an adulterer and now he's the king of England, but her son was an adulterer. Um, they married her off his son, her son off to Diana, and it was kind of a sham marriage. Like, there's all sorts of scandal in her family, and I'm sure that that brought her great, great shame and great personal frustration and angst. But in her own personal life, in her marriage, in her in her immediate uh, circle of what she did and was, there was never a scandal that involved her. She brought a sense of stability to the nation of England and to the the Commonwealth so that she was sovereign over if we want to use that language that that was really unparalleled and she's one of the few remaining like she was one of the few remaining genuine monarchies in the modern world there's not a lot of other monarchies that are right. genuine actual monarchies in in right. the world and so many of them are even more figurehead than this but she was a figurehead in the best sense of the word she right, represented exactly. the people and because she held herself to such exacting standards it was obviously not universally true, but that brought the the people of, of the British colonies, in, nations, whatever they're called, the realms, I guess they call them, that actually elevated them and forced them to live to right. a certain standard because they considered themselves and said there was a certain sense from a lot of the people that I've spoken to who live in those nations, they had to sort of live up to their calling as subjects of this, not just the queen, but this particular queen. So it'll be interesting to see what what happens when Charles takes over and he's he's not the figurehead who already has a far more suspect um, moral life than than she did, um, and you know they're not. I don't anticipate his reign will be anywhere near as long because he's almost seventy five years old, I think. Um, but then when his son takes over and when his son takes over, so it'll be interesting to see. But she really was a queen that I don't think I don't think most people who are listening to this show, uh, I would venture to say nobody who's listening to this show has ever lived when there was a different queen or king of England. So right. I would be very surprised if we had some like 90 year old or like, like 70 year olds listening to the show. Maybe there are, <laughs> if, if you're out there, sorry oh, if, out I'm, there. if I'm being ageist, but I just think most of us don't have any concept of what it's like for either to be any other queen in England. So, um, so yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that, but I, I think it's important to recognize this is really a historic transition in like the most genuine sense of, the word historic. It's not just like this is a big deal, but this is this is a really significant transition in an entire nation of people. And and she was one of those monarchs that very much sets the tone for the world in a lot of ways. In some ways, and this is very much true because of because of how the Church of England functions, in some ways the Queen and the Pope are seen in parallel respects. So like the, the the contrast between the queen and the pope as sovereigns over nations that are both political and religious in a certain sense, there are parallels there. And when we look at the scandals and the the moral more questionable morality in some of the papacy versus the queen of England, there really is just a it's a very stark contrast that I think right. a lot of people probably don't recognize until they dig into it a little bit. Right, that's fair. And just like last week, then I'm just gonna kind of slide in. I'm gonna slide into your denial and kind of come along with you. And I, I can't really add anything. So what I'm going to do instead is I read that first paragraph from Andrew Roberts article or essay. She was the best of us. Let me read the last paragraph, which I think is right in line with what you said. So here's what uh, Mr. Roberts writes. He says, we as a nation made the queen do things that we would never, ever even consider doing ourselves. We expected her to do her job to the age of 96 when we retire at 65 and to keep doing it up to two days before her death. We expect her to invite bloodthirsty dictators to stay in her home because British foreign policy interests required it. We expected her, aged 86, to stand on a boat in the Thames in the freezing rain during the Diamond Jubilee, waving for hour after hour. We expected her to shake the hand of a former IRA gunman who approved the murder of her husband's uncle. We expect her to smile and charm and shake hands cordially, whatever she might privately have been feeling inside about her family's all too public traumas. She did all of it. And in 70 years, she never once complained. She was the best of us. Yeah. Yeah. She, she was something else. Yeah, this is literally I mean, the end of an era they're calling this the second Elizabethan era. And I think as someone who studied history, I, I think sometimes that kind of stuff gets blown out of proportion, but not this time. 
This is genuinely yeah. like a historical epoch that will be considered in the history books as an era of British history, similar to the first Elizabethan era. So for sure. And of course, all this conversation does lead us into thinking about Jesus as our King and to thinking about what it means, as you already kind of pointed to this idea of royalty and that there's like a royal component to salvation that again, we've kind of made this emphasis. We've been teasing this all along that it's not just forensic when we're talking about salvation, that there is something that is transformative. We spoke last episode about being a new creation and about the fact that there is something to be said for status. If you get married and you're a woman in many Western cultures, you would take on the last name of your husband. That's just a legal name change. But we're talking about something even more profound than that. There is that, but there's also, beyond just getting the label Christian, there's something that is fundamentally different about who you are while you are yet at the same time the person that you started out with, the one that God created you to be. And so here we now arrive at this understanding, I think it's appropriate time to start trying to understand what about adoption? And again, this is like the the thing that just kind of gets shifted to the side because I don't know if it's because there's other great words that ends in ION that we we just tend to focus on, or if it's just a matter of not really understanding what adoption is and how it fits into all of salvation. But let's get after it. Yeah, I think um I think, you know. Like we talked about last week with conversion, conversion is one of those weird things in the Ordo Salutis where it floats around because people are not, it's hard to place exactly where it is and and how it happens and when it happens, not only in our own experience, but also there's a, there's a variety of, of ways we can conceptualize conversion and how we conceptualize conversion determines where we put it in the Ordo Salutis. I think adoption suffers from a similar kind of a situation where because we don't, um, we don't have a moment in time that we can point to and say, this is when we were adopted by Christ in the spirit. Um, I think there's a lack of focus on it. And so much, so much of our modern understanding of theology and our modern reflections on theology are driven by historical factors like um, revivalism, particularly fundamentalism, Billy, Billy Grahamism, if we want to call it that. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of focus in evangelicalism, rightly so, on the point of conversion, the moment of justification, the day of salvation. All that language is valid and important, and it it has its place. So there's the focus on the beginning of the Christian life, the justification part. When you when you move from a status of enemy of God to the status of friend of God or or not right. enemy of God, when you move from being guilty to being not guilty, there's an appropriate emphasis on that. There's also an appropriate emphasis on the Christian life after that, right? Sometimes an inappropriate emphasis, right? We All of these things can get out of whack. You can focus too much on justification. You can focus too much on sanctification or Christian living. But there's a, there's an appropriate focus on now living a life of holiness, of being obedient to God's law, of, of living up to your calling, showing gratitude, however you want to frame it. Adoption is one of those things that happens logically kind of in between those two moments, and and because because there's not necessarily a specific distinct point in the ordo salutis that's separate from justification where adoption happens right there's no new there's no new experience for the christian so our largely experientially driven christianity which is what most of us came up on doesn't have room for what this means so so either we we it gets kind of like absorbed into justification as the beginning of the Christian life right or it gets absorbed into like well yeah you just you're a child of God now so you just have to live a righteous life and it kind of gets absorbed right. into sanctification but thinking and talking about adoption as its own distinct part of the ordo salutis and its own distinct element of the Christian life right we 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 live up to our calling in Christ Jesus largely as subjects of the king subject to his laws and subject to his rulership, his sovereignty as, as our savior, as our saving King, right? We talked about in the, the Christ is King episode, he subdues us, he rules us, he defends us, all of that, that means, but living as sons of the King doesn't mean we're abstracted from those laws. It actually means we are much more closely held to those laws, right? We, we, I, I alluded to this analogy a little bit in that episode, but there are certain breaches of decorum when you were meeting the queen that were unexcusable. And I think like one of them was like, you were never supposed to to extend your hand to shake the queen's hand. Like there was some sort of decorum that 
involved how you initiate contact with the queen. And I think it was President Obama who breached that. He didn't understand it. He, he I don't know, he reached out and shook her hand or did something like that. And there was all this, all this press about it. And the queen was very gracious. She didn't make a big deal out of it. Because the president of the United States, although he's expected to understand how that decorum works, he's not expected to understand and adhere it the same way as Prince Charles would have been expected to understand it or Princess Di when she was alive, or Prince William, or or Meghan Markle. Like that's one of the big, the big drama pieces with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry is she just ignores all that decorum. She ignores all of the the, the niceties and the the ceremonial aspects of being a princess. She just disregards those. And so it's a big deal. And in a certain sense, that's how I think the Christian should reflect on and look at the law of God in relation to our status now as sons and daughters of God or sons, sons of God is really the biblical language. That's not to exclude women. Obviously I'm, I'm not saying women have to become men. There's none of that weird proto gospel of Peter stuff, but the Bible is, is looking at this as with successor language, right? We're the heirs of the kingdom and for better or worse in biblical times, daughters did not typically inherit land or property or titles. So the heirs of the kingdom are conceptualized as sons. It's important to to think about that differently and distinctly from our general obligation to God's law as his creatures and even as those whom he saved. There's a higher distinction and a higher obligation of obedience that, that the princes of a kingdom bear than the subjects of the kingdom bear. And there's right. a weight and a gravity to it that I, I think because we've lost this language of adoption, we've we've lost that in general. And then on top of that, an even more ignored element of this is how the spirit is the particular agent of adoption. Right. We're adopted in Christ, but it's the Holy Spirit that's affecting that adoption. Right. And, and the same as if you want to use the marriage analogy, which the scriptures certainly do, they don't specifically talk about the, uh, the spirit as like the one who unites us to Christ in marriage, but he is the one who unites us to Christ. So adoption, marriage, it's a similar kind of metaphor that the scripture is using for what's happening, how we're swept up into the reality of the Trinity. And I think that there's just, there's lots of good room for us as Christians and reformed Christians where union with Christ is such a vital part of our theology to really spend time reflecting on the spiritual and adoption. Yeah, I agree with that. And to, to be thinking about, like you said, how that impacts who we are, how we behave, is that the progenitor, is that the source, the intent behind our commitment to piety, to how we undertake daily worship? I like what you said, because I think it's helpful for us to remember that adoption is really not reducible to some kind of like compartmentalized concept of dogmatics. Maybe right. that is why it gets like inadvertently left behind. Adoption summarizes, as far as I can tell, really the gospel itself, because it's engaging the entire scope of redemptive history, and it exhibits the essence of union with Christ by the Holy Spirit, like you just said. So it's this idea of being in Christ. We speak about that a lot, right? And I made a big deal about that last week, being in Christ. But how is it that you're in Christ? You're in Christ by the Holy Spirit, by the agency of the Holy Spirit, who applies this great work of God through his Son to your life in a way that's like intensely practical and also you know, dogmatic and theological such that you can analyze it and understand it in the intellectual realms as well. So we need to broaden the application of the gospel truth by arguing that the believer is not merely like forensically privileged. And as Reformed people are really good at that argument. Yeah. But that in addition, the believer, he or she gains familial privilege in spirit wrought adoption. Yeah. And this is the only reason why Paul can say things like, I, I realize you got super Pauline earlier when you were talking about uh, Queen Elizabeth by saying like, live up to your calling, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's so Pauline. It's like, but why can you live up to that calling? And what is the calling you want to live up to? It's because you have not merely been given like a new title. It's not like it's Paul saying, listen, you got a job promotion and look at what it says in your business card. What he's actually saying is, listen, you've been adopted now. Yes, there's a forensic change. But in addition to that, you've been brought into a family and that family has privileges and that family has responsibilities and that family has the power of the Holy Spirit behind it to in fact come forward and to make real the thing which it is intended like again for you to do. So you know, when we looked, when we looked at scriptures, I think we're going to quickly do that here by looking at Romans and Galatians. Th this idea of adoption is a compound word in Greek, like we talked about before. 
And it is, of course, transactional. It's very economic. You know, adoption, even in our own cultures and in our own temporal realm, is has a transactional component to it. It's a new state of affairs. The believer is adopted and lives forever as an adopted son. But adoption is literally, in that Greek compound word, son placing. And I love yeah. that. That's why I always think of it, child placing. So you can see, like, there's all this volition. There's all this adjective. There's all this emphasis. It is a doing of something. It is the heart of God to give and to save and to place, which is why we can't go far in John 3.16 before we get to this idea that for God to love the world that he gave. Yeah. And that giving leads to this adoption. It leads to this son placing. And in this meeting, then what we're getting at, which is, I think, to your point, is slightly different than all the other terms we talked about, sanctification, glorification, justification, is that in adoption, what we mean is we're upholding the apostolic intention to express the gospel as the ultimate covenantal fulfillment. Yeah. God doesn't need children, but he everlastingly loves them from eternity past by to eternity future by virtue of the promised and accomplished redemption through his own son that's applied by the Holy Spirit. And that whole thing, like that whole jam, that whole amazingness, that is adoption. And while it has in a Venn diagram of sorts, some overlap with all the things we talked about, it needs to be emphasized as its own thing because to be an orphan and then to be brought in a family is great. But then to like be treated in that family as if you were natively, organically born, that you you yourself have a pattern and a pedigree because somebody else has given it to you and you have all the privileges, that is what then allows Paul to say, live up to your calling. Yeah. And it's what the thing that should propel us forward with just studying the scriptures, wanting to know more about our father, but then wanting to please him in this righteous living because we have that responsibility and that privilege. Yeah. So I'm going to read, um, cause I want to, I want to get to the scriptures and I want to make sure we give ourselves enough time. We're going to go to Romans chapter eight, and then we're going to do a little bit in Galatians two, but I'm going to, I'm going to read Romans eight a little bit out of order. And I don't normally do this. I normally would advise you read the Bible in order that the Holy Spirit inspired it. But I want to look at Paul's argument in a slightly different way. And so I'm going to start in verse 26, and then I'm going to jump back um, to verse 12. So it says, starting in verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, so just put a pin in that for a second here. This is the culmination of Paul's argument in this section of Romans, right? So what he's saying before this is all leading to this. And so the, the purpose of salvation, the pur God's purpose of salvation, the chief end of man in salvation, if we want to borrow that language from the catechism, is that Jesus might be the firstborn among many, many brothers. This is, this is one of the primary places the Reformed tradition gets the understanding that our salvation ultimately is to God's glory. God saves us out of his great love for us, but an even more fundamental reason for that is out of his own glorification of himself and his own glorification of his son, Jesus Christ. He saves us so that, that Jesus might be the firstborn and preeminent among many brothers. And so backtrack right. here to uh, verse 12. This is sort of what's leading into this. He says, so then brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness to our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So, so this is leading to the purpose of salvation, which is that we will be like Jesus, will be conformed to his image so that he will be the firstborn among many brothers right? That's the purpose. This is the means. And this is, this is, I think is so profound. And I, I, this is one of those things that I wish 
that like every Christian, when you get converted, like you got like a letter in the mail that's like explain this because it's so profound to the Christian life. In verse 26, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. A lot of times I think we think of that as though it is some sort of general intercession. It's some sort of general groaning, right? Like I'm not really sure how to pray about my job. And so the spirit knows in the mystery of the mystery of God's providence that actually I'm due for a promotion. So he's telling the father that my inept prayers are actually prayers for, for my promotion. Like I've heard people make that argument. But that's not what the text is saying. If you go back here, what is it that we cry out? It is by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. Right? So this whole thing is is thrusting towards the adoption of God's children. Right? There's a whole limited atonement, definite atonement argument that can be made there too. But this whole point of Paul's argument here is thrusting towards adoption as a central, and I would actually say, like the chief element of what God is trying to accomplish in salvation. He's not just seeking servants. He's not just seeking those who will worship him or those who will acknowledge his lordship and will sort of worship in this vague sense. He's seeking children and heirs of the universe to be brothers of Christ. So we're going to, we're going to go to Galatians in a minute because I think that that this fleshes this all out a little bit. But it's so important for us also to recognize we don't become children by our own effort. We don't even become children necessarily but through faith in Christ in a, like a direct, it's us doing it sense. We become children of God because the Holy Spirit enables us and in fact cries out for us, Abba Father. It's not just that he teaches us the words or that he gives us the ability We'll see when we get to Galatians. He actually cries out on our behalf, Abba Father. So it's it's really important not to sort of like pull the spirit apart from this. It's the spirit who unites us to Christ. We want to use the marriage analogy. It's the spirit who marries us to Christ. It's that spirit wrought union in faith that is where our salvation is found. In the adoption analogy, and I'm I'm only saying analogy in the technical sense. This is an analog of what's happening, not in some sort of like this isn't real. It's real. We don't become like actual biological children of God. We don't actually become married to Jesus in some sort of like crass sense. But in this, in this analogical sense of sonship, it's the spirit who is accomplishing this. The spirit is the one who brings about this union with Christ. And then in Christ, we now have a right to all of the privileges of the sons of God. I think that's right on. And I'm glad that you brought up this idea about what does it mean that the spirit intercedes on our behalf and has that tie into adoption? Because I think oftentimes if you're people are like me, you, you've read this and because it's attached immediately to prayer, which is this one act, of course, of communicating with God, the father, this intimacy of communication and consummation. And because prayer is something that we know we use words in our own minds or you know, if we express those verbally outside of ourselves to communicate with God, that we get wrapped up in this idea that somehow what this is saying, what Paul's after here is, do you ever have that time where you feel like you want to pray about something? Maybe you're in too much pain. Maybe you're grieving too much. All you can do is like kind of groan Godwardly. You just lack the vocabulary. And here's what the spirit does. He comes in and he says, I got this. I know how you're feeling. Let me just do a little translation, a little synergy here, a little synthesizing of how you feel into language that God would understand. And it's actually way worse than that. Yeah. And I think some of like the best writing I've ever read on this is actually by Paul, um, Paul, (laughs) John Bunyan. Just say Paul. Um, It's by Paul. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say Paul, Paul also. Um, and then John Bunyan writing about Paul, because what he goes to into saying is what Paul is after here is exactly what you're saying. It's far worse than that, is that you just don't know how to pray. You don't actually know how to be an adopted child. You cannot be this yeah. way. And so what the Spirit does is he both unites you to Christ. He is applying, as it were, all of the great things that Christ has accomplished. And then more than that is giving you the hope and assurance. He's helping you to see that you are signed, sealed, and delivered into the family. And you can never accomplish that on your own. Like on both sides of that, you can't accomplish the actual coming into the family with all the familial blessings and the privileges. And by virtue of that, in addition to, you cannot also either earn or have the kind of satisfaction or the confidence that you are on a Tuesday morning still in that family. So by the power of Christ's resurrection life in the spirit, adoption for the redeemed entails this moral and on the last day bodily renovation. 
by virtue of actually becoming a sibling of Christ. Yeah. Who does that for us? It's the Spirit's application of that. There's like just so much lovely Trinitarian language in there, isn't it? Like that's yeah. kind of our jam is Trinitarian. So isn't yeah. there like you see in this, the fact that there is an economy of the Trinity, that there's a blessed union in the the focus and the achievement of the Trinity. And at the same time, what you find in adoption is the various parts that each of those parts of the Trinity are playing. Yeah. There's a change of both state and nature. So to me, what I hear Paul saying is this, adoption marks this culmination of Christ's covenantial obedience, his appointment as a reigning son, his resurrection power, his cosmic victory over things like sin and death, and his entrance into the full blessing of the Father. Yeah. So ad- adoption is not intended to like distinguish us from the exalted son of God, but to express the nature of our privileged solidarity with him. And we need the help of the Spirit to do that. The Spirit yeah. is the person who does that. It, it's a bit like saying, and I know we want to get to Galatians. Here's the last thing I'll say is, uh, I have this pet peeve where people will sometimes try to express that they want to show or want to promulgate an intimacy with God in a particular setting. It goes something like this often. Maybe a preacher is saying this. Maybe somebody's giving a testimony. Usually it happens in a public setting. Somebody will say something to the effect of, imagine if Jesus were walking among us now. Like you have that kind of intimacy. And I always want to say, we don't need that. Like, yeah. you know what's better than having Jesus here right now? First of all, because he has a ministry explicitly in the heavenly realms that we want to make sure that he right. continues to undertake on our behalf. But better than that is having the spirits of God within you right. who unites you to Jesus yeah. Christ and all of his benefits. It's better than him sitting next to you. In other words, you would better have the Holy Spirit within you, uniting you to Christ, than to be absent of the Holy Spirit and having Jesus sitting within yeah. arm's reach. Yeah. And, you know, I, we we are going to go to Galatians here in just a minute. And, and this is a super, super profound element of Christian theology. Um, I haven't read it. Um, I, it's Jason Alexander. Is it Sons in the Sun? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I haven't read it, but I've heard phenomenal things about that it's book. It's amazing. I'm, I'm sure it touches on all these themes. But this, you're right. I often hear that the spirit groans on our behalf. I often hear that as like, in its most crass sense, this is where we get the idea of like, like, gibberish utterings like just just make yes. noises and the holy spirit right. will, will fill in the gaps Translate. for what you're not saying and and that is such a cheap ridiculous understanding of what it is that the text is saying and so just to just to sort of like put an exclamation point on what i just said about romans here i'm going to start reading in in galatians 3 verse 29 and if you are christ's then you are abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise Verse one, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions as son. Right? So right there's the, the purpose statement of salvation again. It's, it's phrased differently, but again, the purpose statement of salvation here is not that we might be free from the legal penalties of law. That's a part of it. Right. It's not right. that we might live lives of righteousness that are beneficial to our temporal success. That's part. I think that's part of it. Like God wants us to be temporally successful and generally obedience to his law will bring that about. Not always, but proverbially, most of the time, if you live according to God's law, your life is going to go better than if you don't. But the purpose of salvation is not just those things. It's adoption. Then he goes on here. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There it is again. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now you have become to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you then turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be or you want to be once more? So there's there's a polemic going on here. But the thing that I wanted to know, right, in Romans, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groanings too deep for words, right? And through that intercession, he enables us to call out Abba Father. Well, here, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit crying Abba Father. So Paul fills in here in Galatians what it is that those intercessions that are too deep for words actually are. 
he has inspired words here that tells us what those words are. So it's not, it's not some general idea that the Holy Spirit is filling in the gaps in our weak language. I think he does that. Like, I, I think we pray and we pray for things we ought not to. We don't know what to pray for. Sometimes we don't even have knowledge of the things that are necessary for prayer. And I think right, the Holy exactly. Spirit does bring those concerns to the Father on our behalf. I think more often he brings those to the Father on our behalf by bringing them to our mind, and then we we pray for them. But that's not what Paul's talking about in Romans 8 or Galatians Galatians 3, 3 and 4 here. He's talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ, and in that union with Christ makes us sons of God. It makes us heirs. It makes us sons who not only have all the privileges— but we have the responsibilities. And if you follow what's coming next in Galatians, and if you follow what comes after in Romans, it's all about sanctification. So the, right. the, the reformed ordo salutis of justification, adoption, and sanctification in that order, right? Now, again, those things are happening concurrently in time, but adoption happens in that moment between justification and sanctification logically. And so justification happens because now we're legally right, the Spirit now unites us to the Father through the Son as sons. And now as sons, we have all these responsibilities, and also we should have this great gratitude for our Father. We love our Father, so we want to obey Him, right? I, August is too too young to, to be thinking in categories of obedience, but there are definitely times where I show I can show my pleasure towards him and he responds and you can tell he craves that. So we're doing sleep training right now. And one of the things that you do with sleep training is sometimes you got to lead him in the crib and cry. And so in the morning when you go in to get him, you act all excited and you talk about how proud you are and you hold him close and you hug him. And he goes from crying to smiling and hugging instantly. And you can tell he's just sucking up all of that positive I love you. I'm proud of you. You're doing so great. He's sucking that up. Even though he doesn't have a mindset or a conception of what that means, he just knows it instinctively. That's what we have in the Father. He's constantly telling us how pleased he is, how, how much he loves us, how much he cares for us. And as sons now, we're able to cry out to him, even though we don't understand it, Abba, Father. Now, we don't have time to get into Abba, Father. It's not Daddy God, right? Daddy is such a such a diminutive word in English. It doesn't really get out what it's going on. Abba was the affectionate term that an adult man would use for his father. Right. I, I don't know about you. I don't call your father daddy. Right. He, right. He's my father in law, don't. but, but I don't ever call him daddy. All right. I call him dad. That's probably more, that's probably closer right. to what right. Abba is. It's an affectionate term that also carries respect. It's not distant like father might be right. If I called, if I called, if I said to dad, father, I need to talk to you. That's a different tone than if I said, hey, dad, can we have a talk? Like it's still it's still the same linguistic content, basically. But there's an intimacy and a desire to do well by that I think is really key to all of this. And then that naturally leads us into sanctification, right? I'm all about right. guilt, grace, gratitude. I think that the, the gratitude ethic of the Heidelberg Catechism is definitely correct. This puts a different lens on it. It's not just general gratitude. It's gratitude that we've been transitioned from sons or from slaves to sons, from slaves to heirs. It's not just a gratitude that I got out of jail free and I get to right. go past go and collect $200 again. It's a gratitude that you saved me from the pit of death. That's a different level of gratitude than just salvation from some vague penalty. Right. And, and incidentally, that's one of the things, one of the many things that sets Christianity apart from any other religious worldview, isn't it? It's the, because there's a lot of worldviews that say you're granted amnesty. Yeah. There's very few that actually say you've somehow been brought into the stream of what is holy and righteous. And this is altogether different. So I think that while maybe we could talk about, it's fun to think about where adoption lies within the scope and the spectrum or the timeline of the temporal timeline that is of all these things we talked about, all these big words. But at the end of the day, it's just more important that we realize that this is the way it is. And that if you are a Christian, you've been saved by grace of God has arrested your heart and saved you. That this means that beyond just saying like, you've been given a new title and a new life, your new creation, but you actually have been brought into a new family. And that familial mark, that crest or coat of arms, so to speak, that you wear is actually empowered, enabled by the Holy Spirit. That it's, it's he himself that does that for you on your behalf. So even there, again, this is a great source of comfort and strength to us. If the Holy Spirit is the one that establishes us, then it means that you need 
need not worry in your prayer life that you somehow need to meet some kind of meritorious bar that you need to perform or live or work up to something. Because if you fail to do that, then somehow you're out of the family or you get written out of the will. That's not how this works. The Holy Spirit is that seal, that deliverance, that thing that gives you the signification and the comfort to know that it's all taking place. So we find like in the Old Testament adoption, this idea, which and it's not, we've been talking about Romans and Galatians. Of course, we find adoption. It's ubiquitous in the scriptures and the Old Testament, you know, adoption finds its eschatological fulfillment in the resurrection of the Son of God, in whose resurrection the typological filial promises come to fruition. Yeah. So, like those in Adam are sons of disobedience, guilty and corrupt, but those in Christ are adopted sons. They're forgiven, that's forensic, and they're washed, that's renovation, in Him. And the adoption of Christ fulfills in every way this cosmic goal of Adam's sonship. So, in, in some ways, what we're saying is, we're continually just going back to the garden. We're going back to the garden. And you get that now. You get to click, drag, and drop that sonship, which you know some in the religious world viewers would say has to be reserved and saved for heaven if you can, in fact, get yourself there. What we're saying is in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're adopted. You come into that with all the blessings, the entitlements, the, the airship uh, right now. And it's a bit funny to tie this all the way back to where we started. That I think as Americans, we look at some of like the titles that let's say like the British royalty have, and we think, oh my word, they're so funny. Like all these little tied up prints of this and Cornwall that. And, but all of these things are meant to signify in a very profound and clear and cogent manner that this person has a titleage and a pedigree and is firmly established in a family where they bear, they are an heir in a particular way. And it's beyond doubt. It's unequivocal. And that is exactly what we have here in the sun. Yeah. And that it's applied to us by the whole power of the Holy Spirit. So I think like maybe sometimes Christians have felt there's been like all this indicative without like, you know, the imperative, this idea of like, oh my goodness, like I feel weighed down by this responsibility, but I don't know how I'm supposed to do that. It starts with understanding what adoption actually means. Yeah. And it starts by not just saying like, okay, I'm adopted, but understanding like you've just explained for us how that propels us forward. Like it, it really is all of the emphasis. It is really the jet blast behind us that propels us into piety, into worship, into daily commitment to Jesus Christ as our King, because we're part and parcel, we're in the family. And like when you consider yourself part of a family, you want to do that family proud. You, you, there's a sensibility that you've been empowered because like you've been brought in to represent it and to represent it. Well, there is both the indicative and the imperative in that statement of adoption. So I think it's just good, no matter how people feel at the end of this, wherever they're trying to kind of put it in, shoehorn it into like their understanding of the temporal order of events. Like that's fine. You can do that kind of thing. And that's, that can be profitable in its own right. What's better is to realize that you really have been brought into the family. Like it's, just, it's that simple, isn't it? Like you, you just, you're in the family of God yeah. and it's, it's not even just like a, um, Hey, you know, like, welcome. What's your name again? It's like, no man, like you are a son or a daughter of the King and you are royalty and he loves you and has saved you and has brought you in to give you every spiritual blessing and every privilege that your first brother earned for you. You also have yourself and it's hard to understand how that can't be transformative in the way that we think and believe and the way that we live. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I we could go on and, uh, and, you know, we'll probably, I'm sure we'll come back to this subject again at some point in the, the course of this podcast in, you know, the next For thousand, sure. thousand episodes. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to just, we always like to leave people with good tools and, and we've, you know, we try not to make these, these logos bits, um, too hacked in there. And this is a, this is a genuine way that I regularly use Logos Bible software is when you highlight a section of uh, the Bible, you can right click on it and it will bring up all of the different like guides and, and um, themes and things will come right up here. So if you were to select Romans eight verses 12 through 17, which is the, the main portion there that talks about adoption and right click on it, one of the things that comes up is you have preaching theme adoption, which if you use that is gives you options to start a sermon. So if you're a pastor and you're looking for, you know, you've got an assigned text. Sometimes you just know what the next text in your series is if you're doing Lacto Continua, but you're not sure what you want to preach on. It'll help you start the sermon or it has theological fact books, theology gods. 
And you can actually just go in there and in the theology guide, it's got a nice, this whole thing has a nice little section on specifically the Holy Spirit's role in adoption. So even as we're doing this episode, I'm able to look at these resources. And had we not already spent like 12 hours talking about Lord of the Rings, I would have brought this quote into it and we would have talked about it. But through this guide, it brought me straight to this section in uh, Herman Witsius, Economy of the Covenant Between God and Man, in his chapter on adoption. And he says, whom God has admitted into a state of peace and friendship with himself, he has also adopted for sons, that they may enjoy the benefits both of grace and glory, not only by the favor of friendship, but also by a right of inheritance. There is no friendship more familiar than that between a father and his children, or rather, that natural affection between these exceeds in familiarity and sweetness everything that can be signified by the name of friendship. There is not any one word, any one similitude borrowed from human affairs that can sufficiently express or represent this most happy band of love, which can hardly be explained by the great number of metaphors heaped together. So so you can go from, I, I don't know what this passage means, I'm not sure what to think of it, to all of a sudden you have a theology theme, uh, and then you have all sorts of resources to now just a really beautiful articulation of everything we just said for the last hour. That it's not just that we become friends of God. It's not just that we're in this legal rightness with God. It's that we right. become adopted. The most intimate human familial relationship that we have is father and son, right? That's the closest bond, at least in, in most cultures. The closest bond that a family has is between a father and his, and his children. That's what we have with God. And you can go you can go through that whole process. That take, I mean, when I was doing that on the fly, it took two minutes. It, the software is really amazing. Um, we're coming up to the end of our kind of like sponsored by Logos series. So we're still going to use Logos. It's still the best software out there. But I wanted to make sure that we get these tools in your hands. You can always go to reformbrotherhood.com slash Logos and, and get a discount on a base package. You can always, at least until they stop offering it, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash fundamentals and get a, a base package, the fundamental fundamentals package um, for $50 if you don't have any other base package. It really is a tool that I cannot overemphasize how how amazing and important and useful it is. I literally use Logos every single day, at least two or three times a day. Um, I have it installed on every computer, every mobile device, and I cannot tell you how often I find myself pulling up Logos to look up a fact or look up a scripture or look up a theology thing. And that's not just because I'm constantly arguing with people on the internet about theology. Like there are times when I'm at work and I'm I'm working with a patient and I, I want to say a prayer after I'm finished working with that patient. And it makes, it reminds me of something in the Bible and I can't quite find the passage I'm looking at that I want to think about. And I can find it quickly with Lara. So check it out. Um, they've sponsored several episodes of us of ours now. Um, part of that sponsorship is they provided me and Jesse with copies of the software and and have enabled us to to make use of these resources so we can genuinely recommend to you how useful they are and make sure you understand that we're not just saying this. We really do use this software every day. It's really, really phenomenal. Right. Yeah. Hopefully people will reach out and take a look, just explore logos. And just to tag on to that, while you were talking about that, um, what I did is I went out and downloaded the two free books of the month. Nice. Yes. <laughs> so we've said this before too. One of the nice things is it just helps you grow your library because you get access. So like this month, there's a commentary on the book of Ruth. It's from the Anchor Yale Bible commentary. And then there's, I was, I'm excited to take a look at this, a discourse on free will. It's Erasmus and Martin Luther. Yeah. And these are just the things that are available. They always make some really lovely resources available for free each month. So yep. it's a great way. If nothing else, you pay like a one. So think of it this way, loved ones, like you pay a one-time fee and then you just leverage that fee month. After month. If all you ever did was just download the free resources, you'll be able to build a library with all kinds of really cool things. Yeah. And it costs you nothing more than the initial commitment. If that's all you ever want to do in life, you would be insanely blessed yeah. by having access to Logos. Well, Jesse, I think we've, uh, this has been the definitive episode. So there is no yes. more excuse for anyone to, to miss adoption Never. or to, to set it aside. So um, everyone is on notice now. Yeah, well, I'm sure we'll come back to this. Timestamp it. It's such a profound, profound, important part of the Christian faith that honestly, you're right. We've just, We've just has been underemphasized in, for whatever reason, in our particular part of the the Christian world, it has just been underemphasized. Even even our own confessional tradition. Yes, I, yeah. I've always been uh, disappointed. Agreed. Might not be the right word, but I've always been perplexed 
that such a profound, deep element of, of Christian faith only gets one, one chapter with one article in the Westminster Confession. So right. I'm sure there's good reasons for that, and, and I'm not being overly critical, but it's always been a curiosity to me. And I, I think this is an area we definitely could, could do more work in and, and should do more work in. We as a podcast and we as a church do. That's right. We could turn it around and it can start right here. Yep. So with that said, until next time, Tony, let's honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.